Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter 6, and uh, just excited, thrilled to be here with you this, uh, this evening, and I uh, want to share with you a new study for me, and um, we uh, have really been uh, excited about uh, some, of the, some of the new truth we've been discovering about Jesus in chapter 6, which has been powerful. Now, uh, we have been kind of uh, surveying a little bit of chapter 6 already this week, and uh, we've also uh, are, have become a little more familiar with chapter 5. And we've been learning that uh, chapter 6 is basically the, uh, the, a testing time to see if the disciples, mainly Philip, have learned everything that has been going on uh, thus far in uh, uh, Jesus' teaching to the disciples. Are they catching on to what he's talking about? So chapter 6 is really just uh, kind of a practical testing time of the concept that the disciples were supposed to pick up all along. And of course, the whole concept in which Jesus is trying to get across to them uh, is the idea of really what it means to be a Christian. Back in chapter 5, it came to a head. We've been learning this all along. But in chapter 5, we we really were confronted with the truth that there's only two groups that you can find yourself in. There's only two positions that you can find yourself in in when you relate to God, how you're going to relate to God. There's two groups. Okay? There's the Christian group and the satanic group. Okay? I've been talking about that. They were, they were uh, demonstrated for us all the way through chapter 5. The Christian group is demonstrated by Jesus. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to look like him because he is the model for the Christian group. Now, the satanic group, of course, really the model for the satanic group is Satan. But in chapter 5, uh, the Jewish leadership of Israel, they're the ones who demonstrate that group. Okay? So you have the two groups. Now, what we've been finding in terms of the Christian group is everything going on in the life of that group. Okay? When you take a Christian, everything going on in the life of the Christian revolves around the person. Okay? The, the Christian is person-centered. The Christian is not rule-centered. The Christian isn't tradition-centered. It isn't right and wrong-centered. See, the Christian really isn't even morally-centered. Okay? The Christian is person-centered. Now, that's not to say that hey, as Christians, we don't have rules or traditions or right and wrong or morals. doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we're not centered on those things. Okay? Um, I have all kinds of rules in my life. I quit smoking in 1995 after I became a Christian. And uh, I smoked for 10 years of my life. And I remember moving back to uh, Indiana and was going to Harris Chapel and working at Sears. We already talked about that last night in the toilet. And um, uh, it was at that time in my life where I quit smoking, but um, there just came a point in my life, I remember it vividly, I was sitting outside, and uh, I was stressed out, and see, every time I was stressed out, every time I was, you know, those kinds of situations, I normally did pretty good when I was trying to quit smoking, or I was cutting back is what I, how I described it. But when I become in stressed out situations or those kinds of uh, instances in my life, I, the cigarette calmed me down. And I remember the Lord just speaking to me and, and saying, hey, I want to become that cigarette in your life. See, when you're stressed out, I don't want you reaching for a cigarette, I want you reaching for me. Okay? And he said, you're, you're becoming dependent upon the cigarette. All right? Not to mention it's going to kill you. So, hey, he, he led me to quit smoking. So a rule in my life became that I don't smoke. But now listen to me. Okay? The center point of my life is not about not smoking. The center point of my life is Jesus, and he led me to quit smoking. Because you can stop smoking and not, Jesus, uh, uh, not have Jesus at the center point of your life. So the Christian, now get this, the Christian is not 
See, defined by an absence of certain things and the presence of other things. See, the Christian is not defined by, I go to church on Sunday, uh, I don't drink, smoke, or chew with girls, girls who do, I don't lie, I don't steal, don't have sex before marriage, and I show up to church on Sunday, I pay my tithe, uh, you know, uh, hey, this, that, and the other, I sing in the choir. See, that's not the definition of a Christian. It's not the, uh, the absence of certain things and the presence of other things. Christianity, the bottom line, you've got to get this, the bottom line of the Christian is that that person is person-centered. Everything going on in their life is a direct result of the person, which is Christ, which is God. I serve the person. Saw one of the trucks in the parking lot. Said, real men love Jesus. <laughs> okay? See, the center point of that guy's life is Jesus. I'm into that kind of stuff. Okay? Person-centered. Now, this is going to radically, this is going to radically change a lot of definitions in your life. Okay? For instance, see, I've been really bouncing around the idea of how do you define sin? Okay? Sin, really then, again, for the Christian, the bottom line for the Christian is person-centered. Sin has to come back to that issue then. See, sin is not pornography. Sin is not, uh, you know, alcoholism. Sin is not, you know, smoking or sin is not, you know, stealing. And hey, again, those things are associated with sin, but the real deal about sin comes back to the person, Okay? So anything that's not associated with the person in my life is, is entering into the sin category. Now, let me, okay, now, real quick here, let me give you an example of this. So we're on the same page. This, is from, I, this has been new to me. Um, I'm constantly, and I maybe have spoken of this this week, I, I, I'm constantly talking to younger guys who are getting ready to go through ordination. Okay, And if you've ever been through ordination as a pastor, uh, I know you have, but it's kind of... Uh, intimidating you're sitting around about 15 to 20 25 pastors are asking you these questions making sure you know what you know and all that kind of stuff and um, talking with these guys are going through that process see they begin to look for the right answers okay in other words for instance one of the big questions they say is what does a sanctified life look like well see i struggle with that because anytime you talk about a sanctified life apart from jesus it's not a sanctified life anymore So does a sanctified life go into church on Sunday? Well, kind of. Is a sanctified life never sinning? Well, kind of. Is a sanctified life, uh, you know, uh, hey, serving widows in in your town? Well, kind of. Is a sanctified life, you know, giving money to the poor or or to a youth conference? Well, yeah, that'd be great, but, you know, not exactly. See, the sanctified life is whatever Jesus would look like in your life. See, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do doesn't come back to a standard rule. The right thing to do comes back to how Jesus would have me act in that situation. Okay? So, hey, what does a good person look like? Well, whatever Jesus would look like in that person. It comes back to the person. See, what would you do in that circumstance? Well, whatever Jesus would do. See, I struggled with this back in chapter 5 when we begin to talk about music. See, I talk to teens all the time, and they say stuff like, the only music I listen to is Christian music. Well, see, I think that's retarded, okay? Retarded means limited. Uh, you know, I think that's ridiculous. Maybe that word worked better for you. To say that the only music I listen to is Christian music. Because that's not consistent with other forms of entertainment in your life. And although music is worship, it's by and large entertainment. You go to a, you know, a store to buy music, it's in the entertainment section. Well, what's, what else is in the entertainment section? Movies, okay? So do you make the statement that the only movies I watch are Christian movies? Or the only television I watch, Christian television? You just sit around and watch Veggie Tales all day at your house? 
Okay? It's not a consistent statement. It's not a consistent statement. So listen to me. To make the statement that the only, the only music I watch is Christian music, or the only, music, <laughs> the only music I listen to is Christian music, is not, see, it doesn't make sense. So, again, you'll come up to me after the service and you'll get on me and say, well, are you, you know, uh, propagating that teens listen to non-Christian music? No. But I don't have a rule that says the only music I listen to in my life is Christian music. And they would say, well, what music you listen, would you listen to? The, whatever the music Jesus would listen to, that's the music I would listen to. So it's not that the only music I listen to is Christian music. Hey, whatever music he would listen to is the music I want to listen to. So he is the one who filters my music. So I don't have a rule in place of Jesus. What television shows do you watch? Whatever television shows he would watch. So he dictates, he paces my television time. See, that's Christian stuff. That's what we're talking about. What movies do you watch? Only rated G? Well, no. I watched some rated R. The Passion was rated R, by the way. So whatever movies that he would watch, I will watch. And the movies that he won't watch, I won't watch. Which is, see, that's the Christian life. Which will lead you down roads in your life where people will question you. They'll see you standing outside the movie theater. Or at the, at, they'll, they'll see you standing in line at the block, blockbuster. They'll see the movie in your hand. And they'll say, oh, well, would Jesus watch that movie? And you'll say, well, I didn't even want to rent it. And he drugged me down here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's got a thing about it. I don't, you know? Because Jesus dictates what I watch and what I don't watch, what I listen to, what I don't listen to, hey, what I say, what I don't say. You see what I'm getting at? This is the concept. This is the idea of a Christian. Now, folks, man, I've been, see, I've been beating you over the head with that. That's what we're talking about. That's what I'm into. I'm not into morals. I'm not into traditions. I'm not into that kind of stuff. See, I want to be into the person, okay? This is what he's been talking about all the way up to chapter 6, and of course, it's what he's talking about in chapter 6. Now, when you come into chapter 6, chapter 6 is all, at least the first 15 verses, is the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which is a really important Uh, it's a really important miracle. Of course, it's told by all four gospel writers, which tells you that it's significant. And uh, as we begin to uh, work our way through this, uh, the first 15 verses, this story, this miracle, we divided it up in basically four different studies, okay? Verses 1 through 11 was our first study, and it's basically covering the bulk of what took place there in this scene. Uh, This scene is the testing time uh, by which uh, Jesus... Uh, after he arrives here and sees all the people approaching around verse five, he looks up, uh, it's that point where he sees all the, all the crowd. And then he looks at Philip and he says at the end of verse five, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And verse six, that's explained as he says, he asked this only to test him. So he, Hey, he's testing Philip, Philip. See, what are you going to rely on? Hey, we've got this huge problem. We've got this huge issue. Look at all these people that are coming. Hey, we've got to feed these people. There's 5,000 of them. Most scholars say that was just the men. Probably doesn't even include the women and children. There's, I mean, hey, several thousand people here. He turns to Philip and says, hey, we've got this huge problem. Where are we going to buy bread? And so uh, this first section, what we begin to deal with is Philip and how he does not rely on the person of, see, it came back to the person. See, he should have just turned to Jesus and said, oh, hey, I'm sure you're going to figure it out. And just dumped that thing right back in the lap of Jesus. But he doesn't. He despairs. He says, hey, there's no way this thing's going to work out. That was the first aspect we looked at in the passage. The second aspect we looked at was we looked at Andrew's response over against Philip's response. Andrew's response was in verses 8 and 9. And Andrew looks at the resource that he has, which he stole from a poor kid, uh, his sack lunch, 
And he says, hey, this is all we have. This is our resource. It isn't much. Uh, it's five barley loaves and two small fish. But hey, I'm sure you can meet the need. And he presents that to Jesus, which, of course, is the response for every Christian. And Andrew, this is neat. See, Andrew models that response. And Andrew's a nobody. In fact, the only reason we know Andrew is because of Simon Peter. Every time Andrew's introduced, they're saying, Andrew. And it's like everybody's scratching their head. And then he adds Simon Peter's brother. And they go, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, I remember him. Okay. And the only reason they know Andrew is because of Simon Peter. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, is the, is the example of the right response. Okay? And Andrew, he's a nobody. He doesn't have much. But hey, he presents what he has to Jesus. Okay? That's the second aspect. The third aspect that we looked at was in verses 12 and 13, which we looked at last night. Uh, which was the idea that this is a sacred moment. And this is due to key words that are used in the passage. Uh, we looked at uh, let, let nothing be wasted, that phrase. That that's, that's the same concept, uh, I would say it like, the same conceptual type of phrase that's used back in Egypt. Are you with me? Okay, It's the same conceptual type of phrase that's used back in the Egypt Passover account. Let nothing be wasted, just as the same uh, statement that's made, burn it, hey, if it's left till morning. Okay, this is sacred. This is special. Uh, this is a special act moving of God. And hey, it's sacred. It's not meant for anything else. Also, we looked at the idea of the baskets. So this is a sacred moment, which has been taken out of the formal, out of, out of the temple scene, out of the special sacred scene, and launched out into the countrysides of life. So he's out there in those scenes. Now, what I want to look with you at this, this uh, evening is verses 14 and 15 which again is trying to express the concept of person-centered. He's been talking about it in chapter 5, and he illustrates it here in these first 15 verses. And we want to look at verses 14 and 15 this evening. Uh, I want to read those for you. I'm reading out of the NIV. This is how it reads. Ready? After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh, you should probably know, this is neat, you should probably know that the audience, okay, the, the 5,000, and that's probably, again, just men, not even including women and children, the, they're not new followers of Jesus. In fact, if you are familiar, and probably are, with the Gospel of John up to this point, you're going to realize that this group appears three particular times uh, up to this point. This is the third time. But that this group right here is always coming in contact with Jesus. It's not a new group. They're not new followers. They're, they're always hanging around. And what's interesting is, this is so neat. What's interesting is, every time, every time Jesus comes in contact with this group, he always responds the same way and puts distance between himself and them. Okay? These are not new. They're the old school. They've been around. They're always hanging around Jesus. But every time, every time they come in contact with Jesus, Jesus always distances himself from them. I want to give you an example of this. Uh, just the other two examples. Flip back with me just a couple pages to John chapter 2. You see this group here. And uh, chapter two, why you see this group here, basically this group that Jesus is dealing with, uh, is up in Galilee. They're the Galileans. And, they, and in all four Gospels, you're going to learn that the Galileans are always really uh, just into his ministry. I mean, that's where the majority of his ministry uh, takes place. And, of course, a lot of his followers were from Galilee. Powerful miracles were in, uh, in Galilee. Hey, that sort of thing. 
So uh, in chapter 2 is the temple scene, and you have a bunch that obviously come down from Galilee to celebrate the Passover, okay? Chapter 2, uh, we talked about this this week uh, in reference. Verses 12 through 16 are the events that took place in chapter 2. You with me? Verses 12 through 16 are the events that took place in chapter 2. Verses 17 through the end of the chapter are the different responses to what Jesus did, if you remember that. Uh, verse 17 was uh, what group? The disciples. Verses 18 through 22 is what group? The Jewish leadership of Israel. Verses 23 through 25, they're the same group that's in John chapter 6. Okay? And this is how they're talked about. Verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's Jesus, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. So they're the people that have come down. There's a whole bunch of them. People that have come down to celebrate the Passover. They see what Jesus is doing in the temple and they believed in his name. Now, listen to how Jesus responds to them. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. There's a last statement, but really his response is, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. That word entrust, which is Jesus' response to their belief, okay? That word entrust is the same word that we translate believe in, the, in, in how they believed in Jesus. Verse 23, it says, they saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. That word believed in Jesus and how he did not entrust himself, that's the same Greek word. So with all the enthusiasm and with all the, the gumption by which they believed in him, you had that same thing expressed in, the, in Jesus not entrusting himself to them. Okay? He wouldn't entrust himself. Now, which is really interesting because, see, the whole point of the gospel is Jesus comes as the fulfillment. He does these signs to show that he's the one that's to come. And people are to believe in his name. Well, in chapter 2, you have all these people that see these signs and say, yes, you're the one. And when they go to believe in his name, Jesus says no, which is really interesting. Now, there's a lot to that, but it gets explained a little bit more uh, down the road. I want you to flip to the second example by, uh, when Jesus runs into this group. It's in chapter 4. Again, folks, I really found this interesting. Every time Jesus runs into this group, it's like he doesn't want anything to do with them. And they're not fringe people. They're the ones who are always around, who are always following him. By the time you get to chapter 6, they're following him out in the middle of nowhere, and they're now without food. So, I mean, so they're really, see, they're adamant about this. In fact, let me paint this picture a little bit, a little bit uh, clearer for you. In Jesus' day, uh, obviously, the, uh, the, 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 those who ruled over, over uh, the people of Israel were the Romans, were a ruthless people, of course. And Jesus was the coming Messiah. Now, the coming Messiah means anointed one, which is what they did to kings. So Jesus was the coming king, what they believed him to be. Okay, he's the coming king. In fact, that's what Pilate asked him in chapter 19, are you the king of the Jews? Okay, Jesus is the coming king. So you have 5,000 men with their women, their wives, and their children that are following Jesus around saying, we want you to be our king. Do you think that would have put them in danger with the Roman army? Absolutely, okay? There's constant risk involved in this. In fact, you have the, these, the Jews, the leadership of Israel, by the time you come down to chapters 13 and 14, 12, 13 and 14, they're nervous because, hey, they think Jesus is going to bring the Romans down to crush them, okay? Because everyone's coming around saying, hey, we don't, want, uh, we don't want Caesar to be our king, we want Jesus to be our king. 
Okay? So this issue of these people, they're not fringe. They're running around saying, hey, we want you to be our king, Jesus. We want you to be our king. And yet, now get this, every time Jesus runs into them, as they're saying, we want you to be our king, every time Jesus runs into them, he doesn't want to be their king. He runs away from them. Let me bring that into, uh, let me explain it in terms of our day. Wouldn't it be, do you think it would be possible for a group of people to come to church every Sunday? And stand up and say, we want you to be our king. You think it would be possible for Jesus to look at those people every single Sunday and say, I don't want to be your king. Now our first response would be, say, would be to say no. But you understand it happened here. Every time this group gets around Jesus, he doesn't want anything to do with them. Okay? I showed you chapter 2. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 43. Uh, just actually, verses 43 and 44. Verse 43, he has left uh, Galilee, and, uh, uh, or he's left uh, Samaria because he had this pit stop in Samaria. On his way from Jerusalem to Galilee, he pit stopped in Samaria, and that's where he had the woman at the well incident uh, deal going on. And now he's on his way to Galilee. Listen to verse 44. Now Jesus himself had pointed out. Now, this is not a direct quote of Jesus, but sometime when Jesus left Samaria, before he got to Galilee... Uh, it was emphatic. In other words, it's, I mean, hey, straightforward. This is big deal stuff, how he says it. He tells his disciples this. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, listen to this. He's on his way to Galilee. This is the group that I'm talking to you about. And before he ever gets there, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm telling you, they're not going to honor me. They're not going to honor me. Hey, I'm telling you, before I ever get there, they're not going to honor me. And that word honor, there's actually a couple of different words that John uses for honor. One Greek word is the word doxa, which means glory or honor. It's kind of giving praise to, adoration, that kind of an idea. This word here is the Greek word tamin, which can be translated honor or value. So what Jesus is saying is, they're not going to honor me, they're not going to value me. Okay, They don't know my value. See, they don't know what I'm worth. They're not going to value me. They're not going to see how much I'm worth. Um, all kinds of parts on my truck that I didn't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily value until they go out and you're stranded on the side of the road. And then you really value those parts of the truck, if that makes sense. I had something on there called a throttle position sensor, a TPS sensor. Some of you have made they have learned the value of that sensor. Okay, I did not know where it was, never heard of it before. But I be, it was very valuable to me. Your church has hey, I found certain light bulbs to become very valuable to you. Okay, you value those, right? <laughs> okay, why? Because you know how much they cost and you know the uh, consequence of when they go out. This is the idea. This group, get this, they're gung-ho for Jesus, but they don't know what he's worth. They don't value him. And why they don't va- why Jesus says this is because they're not into the lifestyle that Jesus is into. They're all into making him king, but Jesus is demonstrating the kind of life that they've been called to live, and they don't value that. See, they don't value him as the lifestyle that, he's been, that they've been called to live. They don't value him as the example of how they're supposed to live. See, they're all into him being king and being ruler, but when it comes into looking at him and saying, hey, the life you're living is the life that I'm called to live, see, they don't look at him that way. They don't value him as that kind of uh, representation in his life, okay? That's the second example. Now, chapter 6 is the last time we see this group. 
And again, it's, I find it really interesting. Now get this. In chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, they see the miraculous sign and they say, now get this, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now get this. I find this really interesting. Again, it's this group in Galilee. They're the ones back in chapter 2 who believed in his name and Jesus said, nah. They're the same group that when he came into Galilee in chapter 4, all the whole town runs out the scene from town to town. The news spreads that he's here. And as soon as, he comes out, as, soon as they come out to meet him, Jesus says, eh, they're not going to honor me. They're not going to value me. So every time he comes around this group, he didn't want anything to do with it. Now he comes into chapter 6, and they're rushing. They're going to make him king, and he runs up the side of the mountain, and you guys know what happens. He tells the disciples to go out in the boat. He'll catch up with them later. He ends up walking across the water, gets in the boat, and they go to, uh, they go to the other side of the lake in Capernaum, and they end up having to chase him down. But the idea is, is every time, every time Jesus is around this group, he does the same thing. My question is why? I want to ask you a question. If there was a certain group of people that every time they came around and got together, Jesus wanted nothing to do with them, and that's strong language, but every time this group got together, Jesus wouldn't want to be a part of them, wouldn't you want to know why? <laughs> You'd want to know why, because I don't want to fall in the same pitfall that they're falling in. See, every time that group comes together, even and they're, again, they're not fringe, they're the ones that's chanting his name. And yet every time Jesus comes around, he doesn't want anything to do with him. I'd want to know why. And I've struggled with that in our passage because, see, the whole idea is uh, they say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And that's true. He is the prophet. That's the whole meaning of the passage. Jesus is the coming prophet. He's the one that's been prophesied about. And so this is a good, this is a good thing that they say. And yet still, Jesus, uh, he withdraws from them. I want to break down verses 14 and 15, and I kind of want to walk you through this passage. The first significant aspect that you're going to see in verses 14 and 15 is that it's a sign. Okay? In fact, it says, after the people saw the miraculous sign. Um, in John's gospel, in fact, even in this passage, when you, uh, when you look at this, if you were to look at this in the original language, the word miraculous is not even there. It's just the word sign. Okay? And there are seven significant signs in John's gospel, which those are the miracles, which tells you something. That the miracles of Jesus, now get this, the miracles of Jesus were not, were not given to wow you. They were not given to impress you. They were given as signs. And what do signs do? Give you information about something. Signs point you to something. Signs give you further insight into something. And so every one of the signs that Jesus did, there is miracles. Every one of the miracles that he did, well, they were, hey, they were significant. Uh, 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 they were significant things that were done to give you insight into who Jesus was. Now, we looked at one last night. It was the, uh, in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Jesus comes in and he turns the water into wine. And at the end of that statement, at the end of that story, John says, hey, this was a sign. This was a significant event. So you begin to go back and you begin to look at that story and say, well, what's so significant about it? Well, what was so significant about it is Jesus put, told the servants to get what kind of jars? Ceremonial washing jars. He could have told them to get anything. He could have said, go down to the kitchen and grab some water pots. He could have said, hey, go get some new wineskins, fill them up with water. That way, when they were changed, they'd already be in the new wineskins. He could have done anything. He specifically chose 
ceremonial washing jars, which was a statement. It was a sign that after the, the water was changed into wine, they couldn't do the ceremonial washing anymore. It was a sign that, hey, ceremonial pure, uh, uh, pureness, purity, to be pure, okay, was, was not done by ceremonial washing anymore, ceremonial washing. It was by the blood of Jesus. That I'm ceremonially clean, not by the washing of water, not by the traditions, but I'm ceremonially clean because of what Jesus has done in my life. It was a sign. It was a significant event. Does that make sense? So when you come into John chapter 6, it says, after the people saw the sign, this is a significant event that's to teach us about Jesus. It's significant. The feeding of the 5,000 just wasn't about food, man. It wasn't just about feeding people. This was a significant event to teach us about Jesus, okay? It's a significant event to teach us about Jesus. It says, after they saw this, they said, Whoa, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, here's what they do. Now listen to this. It says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, the idea of intended to, which means uh, uh, it was a fact, okay? It's a fact that they're going to do this. He knew it. They are going to do this. Knowing that they intended to come and make him king, by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The idea of this is Jesus knew that they were coming to make him king by force. And actually, it's to make by force him king. In the original language, make by force is one word. It literally means to seize by force, to take a hold of by force in order to do something. So what you have is, is you have this group of people who are coming with their own intentions to make him king by force. Ah, you're going to like this. The Greek word for make, uh, to make by force or to take by force or to uh, you know, get a hold of and, and force, okay, that's the idea. That word in the original language is the Greek word poieo. And we already talked about this this week. Okay, poieo is translated in a number of different ways. And there's two different Greek words that John uses oftentimes in his gospel that, we can, that, we, uh, that he, uh, he uses kind of back and forth. The Greek word proso and the Greek word poieo. The proso is a word that really focuses on the action. Poieo is a word that has action to do with it, but poieo has more to do with the inside nature of why it's done. Okay? I described this to you in terms of trees. Do you remember this? A tree can never proso fruit, it can only poieto fruit. Because it's because what's going on is the inward nature of the tree that determines what fruit it bears. Okay? A tree can't proso fruit. A tree can't, hey, an apple tree can't get up in the spring and say, I'm sick of apples, I'm doing pears this year. Cannot do that. Because a tree just doesn't do fruit. It's because of what's going on inside the tree that in its due season it will poieto fruit. Does that make sense? It will poieto fruit. So an apple tree will produce apples. A pear tree will produce pears. These people right here, get this, it's not just an action. It's not just something that they do. It's the inward nature of who these people are. They cannot help themselves. They are going to, because of who they are, they're going to force Jesus to do what they want them to do. Does that make sense? See, in this passage, it says, hey, Jesus knowing, he knew them knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. And to make by force wasn't just something that they decided to do. They could not help himself. Do you realize, do you realize that when you, and again, we're talking about a sin issue here, a concept of sin. 
that sin is not the outward product. Sin is the what's going on inside of, the, self, the self-perspective kind of a thing. Uh, let, me give you a, let me give you an example of this. See, the whole idea here is that the, what's going on with this group of people, why Jesus always kind of pulls back from them, is because they always operate from their own perspective. They always operate from their own will. They always operate under their own intentions. you got to get this. They always operate from their own deal. See, they wanted to make Jesus, Jesus came to be king, but they wanted to make him king by force out of their own way, their own perspective, their own timing, their own intentions. And again, see, that's how we would define sin. And, and, and the whole, what they say is, is they recognize that he's the prophet. That's not bad. That wasn't bad. But see, hey, you can have good things that be, can become sin. Did you guys know that preaching could be sin? Uh, some of the most non-essentials in church have become sin and divided churches. Carpet can be church or can be sin in some churches. Music styles can become sin in some churches. Because you and I know that it's not the music styles that's sin, it's the, it's the deeper inward issue of people that's sin that manifested in terms of the music styles. It's their own way. So you can have something that's good become sin if it doesn't come back to the person. Let me give you an example of this. Is preaching good? Sure it is. If you're not called to preach by God and you preach, is preaching good? Well, hold on. You just said preaching was good. Okay, is giving $10,000 to the church good? (laughs) If God has not called you to give $10,000 to the church, is it good? In other words, if you're a banker and you, live, you, you work down at the bank and you get $10,000, you give that to the church, <laughs> that's not good. It's called prison time. Okay? It's called bank robbery. <laughs> okay? So you understand, hey, you can take something that's good. Hear me on this. You can take something that's good and it can become sin. And what determines whether or not it's sin? The person. You have a group of people here in chapter 6 who have seen the signs. They're always around Jesus. Every time Jesus is around this group, he, he, he distances himself from them. He withdraws from them. In our passage here, they're going to make him king, which is what he came to be. Do you guys realize Jesus came to be king of the Jews? He came to be, he was the coming king, the coming Messiah. And they're going to come and make him king, but he withdraws. Why does he withdraw? Because it's not in his timing and not in his way. Let me give you an example of this. I want you to flip back with me if you would. And I didn't have you mark this. But it's in Matthew chapter 4. This group right here in in John chapter 6, you would not call them Christians. By the way, by the time you come to the end of John chapter 6, they don't even want to be disciples anymore. In fact, chapter 6, verse like 60, uh, 60, uh, they said, this is a hard teaching who can accept it. And you come down a few verses to verse 66, And it says, many from this point turned back and no longer followed Jesus. So the whole crowd that we have in chapter 6, they're not disciples. They're not not in the Christian group. They're in the other group, which is the satanic group. Okay? And what I begin to find interesting is, what I begin to find interesting is, the characteristics of these groups, the Galileans, are some of the same characteristics of Satan himself. Chapter 4 of Matthew, 
the very beginning of it, is the scene where Jesus is led into the wilderness to be what? Tempted. Now listen to this. You're not, I, one, some of the things I begin to find is not all the temptations by Satan were bad. But see, how do you determine bad? Sin is not about good and bad. Sin is about, and again, a relationship to a person. For instance, look at this. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, The guy's starving to death. He's really hungry. The tempter, verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, is there any commandment in the entire Bible where God says, Hey, no matter what, no matter what you do, you better never turn stones into bread or you're gone. Is that one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not turn stones into bread, thou shalt not covet his neighbor's wife. <laughs> Is that in the Ten Commandments? No, no turning stones into bread. I mean, you do it. See, I couldn't find that. I couldn't find where that was one of the most deadly sins you could do. You ever turn stones into bread, buddy, I tell you what. Right now. See, that ne- you, ne- you can't find that in the Scriptures. But Jesus says, again, see, so, now listen to this. The enemy didn't come and say, hey, uh, you know, hey, murder your next door neighbor, Jesus. That wasn't the temptation. The temptation was turn these stones into bread and listen to how Jesus uncovers it. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus comes back to again, see, his, his uh, existence was not dependent upon what he could provide. See, the real temptation was Satan came and said, hey, depend upon yourself, not on God. Provide for yourself. Don't let God provide for you. Don't rely on God. Turn these stones into bread. You're going to starve to death. And Jesus says, listen, man, my existence is not dependent upon what I can produce, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus brought him back to what? The person. He's dependent upon the person. So the sin had nothing to do with bread. The sin had to do with not relying on the person. Okay, you didn't get, let me give you another one. Verse five. Then the devil took him to a holy city, stood him on the highest point of the temple. And basically he's saying, okay, hey, you want to quote scripture? Because the whole Jesus response, he brought him back to the scripture. And that's, oh, there's significance into that. So Satan goes, hey, you want to pull scripture into this? I know scripture. Let's use scripture. Verse six, if you're the son of God, uh, hey, throw yourself down for it is written. He said, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up, their, uh, lift up you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He, he, Satan grabs, grabs scripture and he said, hey, God said he would do this, do it. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered, it's also written, bringing him back to the scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, so the sin in this issue, the sin in this issue was not about uh, hey, the, the, the casting down or the, the falling off of a temple. The sin in this issue was, again, see, Jesus was pushing, was forcing God into his own position, forcing God into the way Jesus wanted to do it. Jesus is going to throw himself off and force God, hey, this is my plan, and I want you to provide for my plan instead of responding to God. Okay? And not, hey, not getting into my plan, uh, not getting into his plan, but getting into my plan. Does that make sense? That was the issue. See, that was the issue. Again, verse 8. Now, bring this along, okay? Jesus does not live off of his own resource. He doesn't provide his own bread. He lives off of every word that comes from the mouth of God, his direction. He also, in in terms of the second uh, temptation, see, he does not force God into his own plan. 
He lives according to God's plan. See, he doesn't, he doesn't throw himself off and say, hey, save me. He's into God's plan. Doesn't force God into his plan. He's into God's plan. So Satan tempts him and says, hey, you're into God's plan. Well, what does God want you to be? God has called you to be king, right? I tell you what, I'll give you the kingdom. Listen to what he says, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a, high, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Listen to this. All this I will give you, he said, if you just bow down and worship me. Hey, you've been called to be king, right? Hey, God's called you. I tell you what, you don't have to go through that cross thing. You don't have to go through that route. I'll just surrender. Hey, you just bow down and worship me. Just, hey, I'll give you the whole entire kingdom. You've come to be king, I'll give you the entire kingdom. And of course, Jesus says, hey, it is written, uh, oh, he goes, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus is, hey, that it's not in question. It, see, the issue for Jesus was not the end result of becoming king. The issue for Jesus was serving his Father in heaven, which tells you the outcome is just as significant as the means. That it's not the outcome, it's, hey, uh, how do I explain it? See, the outcome is not about not having sex before marriage. See, see or the, 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 big deal is about, uh, uh, the big deal about purity is not about having sex before marriage. That's not the end result. The issue is, hey, the worshiping of God with my body and the whole, the whole deal going through that. Okay? So you begin to see the characteristics of this Galilean group, the same flaws in them as the same flaws in, in the enemy. The enemy is not person-centered. See, he doesn't care if Jesus came to be king, just so it's not in God's way. See, the biggest flaw about the enemy, he's not person-centered. He doesn't, he's not resourced by the person. And when you come into our passage in John chapter 6, these Galileans, well, hey, yeah, they recognize him as the prophet, which is not bad. But see, they want him to be king, not in his way or in his timing. They want to come and make him king by force. I want to, I want to challenge you with something. Do you realize what we've been talking about this week? You've got to get this. What we've been talking about this week is not in, not in you adopting the right morals. Okay, you're telling me, Jeremiah, not to drink alcohol, right? No, that's not what I'm talking about. You're telling me I shouldn't smoke and I should support the church and I need to be good, no sex before marriage, I shouldn't lie or steal. That's not what I'm talking about. What we've been talking about this week, the number one concept that, that, that Jesus is constantly bringing the disciples back to over and over again is that if you're going to be a Christian, everything in your life is going to resolve or, uh, revolve around the person. And whatever in your life does not revolve around the person is sin. Whatever in your life does not revolve around the person becomes sin. Because you look at the Galileans and they see Jesus as the prophet. He's the coming king. And they go, let's make him king. It was sin. Why? Because they brought their own intentions. Jesus knew that they intended to make him king by force. They brought their own agenda. Wouldn't it be something if Christianity was just to come before Jesus with no agenda, no, no intentions whatsoever? That you come into every setting of your life and people say, what's your plan? And you say, whatever his plan is. That will bug your professors to death. When you guys go to college and you get there and they say, what are you going to major in? Just say, whatever he wants me to major in. Oh, well, yeah, I know that, but what classes are you going to take? Whatever classes he wants me to take. Who are you going to date? Whoever he wants me to date. 
What sport are you going to play? Whatever sport he wants me to play. And if he doesn't want you to play sports, what are you going to study? Whatever he wants me to study. Where are you going to go to church? Wherever he wants me to go to church. What are you going to watch on TV? Whatever he wants me to watch on TV. And again, people will laugh and make fun of that. I mean, not, hey, not like giggle because it's funny illustration stuff, but I'm talking people will laugh at you because their idea of Christianity is not his idea of Christianity. What it means to be a a Christian is that everything in your life revolves around the person. And you have a whole group of people that see this miraculous sign in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and Jesus withdraws from them because what they did was bad. It wasn't about bad. Because what they did was evil, it wasn't about evil. Because what they did was wrong, it wasn't about wrong. What did they do? They had their own agenda. They had their own intentions. And they were not into his intentions. Which tells us, which tells us, see, sin can become things in the church that would appear to be good. Church programs can be sinful if they're not led by him. Church evangelistic programs can be sinful if they're not led by him. Building programs can be sinful if they're not originated out of his heart. Preaching can become sinful if I'm preaching to you about what I want to happen versus what he wants to happen. Do you see how crucial that is? Sin can be masked then by good stuff. Which tells me the only intentions that I have to have in my life are the intentions of Jesus Christ himself. I believe that. Father, we love you and thank you for the truth of your word. I want to have no other intentions but you. Jesus is so difficult because we're trained all the way up from little ones to start planning our future. Hey, where are we going to go to high school? What are we going to emphasize in our schooling? Where are we going to go to college? What are we going to major in? Wouldn't it be something, God, if you could help me impress upon my son from the moment he can even start to think about it, Jesus, where are you leading me in my life? And the number one goal for CJ is not about basketball and talent and trying to find out what he's best at and then try to structure or get him into this school and get him into that school, but his whole life can be nothing but the pursuit about, hey, Father, why have you created me? What's your plan? What's What's your agenda? What's your intentions in my life? Because anything that's short of your intentions, Father, is sin. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And again, I don't want to pressure you on this. I don't know how to say it any plainer than we've already talked about it. What in your life is driven by you and not by Him? And maybe He's calling you to lay that aside. There's a guy I went to college with. I didn't know him extremely well. His name was Joe, and he was a football kicker. He was the punter, and the, uh, he did the field goal. He's the kicker. Phenomenal. 
kicked a 64-yard field goal in college. Tons of interviews to go to pro teams. Now, is going to play pro football sin? No. But that wasn't God's plan for his life. He's now a youth pastor on staff in uh, some church. Uh, I, think it's in, uh, I think it's in Illinois. So, see, sin is not about football. Sin is about not falling in, in, in God's plan. See, what, what jobs do we have? What, wouldn't it be something if it's, if it's not about bad or right or wrong, if it's about him? I, I need to seek tonight. I, I, I so much looking forward to come and just having the opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, what in my life are you not a part of? I want to give you a few moments to respond. Let's just seek, would you? Give you the opportunity, altars open for you to come and just say, hey, what in my life does not belong to you?